As I get older, I tend to worry about the way I look in different ways than I did when I was a teenager. That's not to say that I had it easy when I was younger. I had a giant head of hair full of colics that left me with one hairstyle option. I went through headgear and retainers and braces. I was able to avoid acne for the most part, but when I did get a pimple, it was always enormous and impossible to mask. I followed whatever trends I could, if money allowed. Z Cavarici, Swatch Watches, anything neon, Tommy Hilfiger, stonewashed pegged pants, starter jackets, all of it at one time, if I could. I no doubt thought I was cool. Photo evidence will tell you otherwise, however. Nowadays, fashion isn't as important for me, although I guess I still like a certain look. I like to think that I rock a look that says, I'm a dad, but I'm also a cool dad, and I wear cargo shorts and graphic tees and whatever Adidas shoes that Costco currently sells. I liked wearing baseball hats for a long time, but they had to be flex fit for my oddly shaped cranium. I'd typically buy whatever team's hat that the local sporting goods store had on clearance. Oh, you're a big Raiders fan, huh? No, but it was $13.99 instead of $25.99. When COVID hit, I stopped wearing hats because I started shaving my own head. No need for a hat when I have a wake-up-and-go mohawk that screams midlife crisis. I do try to be mindful of all the new places my head grows hair. I have hair trimmers specifically designed for my ears, my nose, my unibrow, and I do my best to keep my beard tight and right. I could wax, I could laser, I could cauterize my pores, but I don't want people to know that I care that much. I'm not sure if cauterizing pores is actually a thing. I guessed at that one. People do some wild things in the name of beauty and fashion. In fact, they always have. If you think today's trends or styles are overboard or bizarre, just wait until we run through the history of what people did to their bodies in the name of looking good. Episode 46, Dedicated Follower of Fashion. The title of this episode comes from the 1966 hit from The Kinks, in which Ray Davies sings, They seek him here, they seek him there, his clothes are loud, but never square, it will make or break him, so he's got to buy the best, cause he's a dedicated follower of fashion. Ray Davies is quoted as saying that the song was inspired by a fight he'd had with a fashion designer at a party. He said, I got pissed off with him always going on about fashion. I was just saying, you don't have to be anything. You decide what you want to be and you just walk down the street. And if you're good, the world will change as you walk past. I just wanted it to be the individual who created his own fashion. It was a terrible brawl. I kicked him and I kicked his girlfriend up the arse. Ray and much of Britain saw how mid-1960s fashion was heading towards the outrageous. Boutiques up and down Carnaby Street blew through trends as people tried to keep up with the latest and greatest. No one wanted to be behind the times. Dedicated follower of fashion was the kink's jab at the fashion industry and those entrenched in it. 
So with that, let's travel through history together and learn about some of the wild, weird, dangerous, and deadly things that people all over the world did in the name of beauty, fashion, and trying to keep up with the latest trends. We'll start in the Bronze Age, 3000 BC to 1300 BC. As people began to settle in places like Mesopotamia, the Indus Valley, and ancient Egypt, we got the invention of the wheel and metalworking. Ancient Egyptians wanted to look good, and also needed protection from the blazing sun. They wanted that smoky black eye look, but unfortunately lived in a time before you could find a wall full of various mascaras at Walgreens. So, what to do? They turned to the natural resources surrounding them to create all of their cosmetics. Common ingredients were malachite, a copper ore, coal, traditionally made by grinding stibnite, red ochre, and henna. Cosmetic preparation was time-consuming, as the minerals needed to be ground down and mixed with a carrier agent that was often animal fat. The time spent making it was worth it to them, however, and not only to women. Men and children also used them for a variety of reasons. It helped them to imitate the gods, protect the skin from the sun. It kept insects at bay and fought against infection. Some Egyptians believed that eyes without makeup were vulnerable to the evil eye. While it had its uses, it was dangerous. The black iron oxide and pigments contained elevated levels of lead. Someone who wore makeup with coal in it could potentially experience dangerous levels of lead storage, which then impacted the brain. Stibnite, which contains a chemical element known as antimony, has been shown to disrupt the skin and digestive tract, as well as causing chronic breathing issues. An interesting side note, Cleopatra even had her own shade of red lipstick that she preferred. Ladies, if you're taking notes, here are the ingredients she used. Flowers, red ochre, fish scales, crushed ants, and carmine. Take all that and mix it in a beeswax base. Not to be outdone, Egyptian men reportedly believed that if they mixed iron oxide, lead, onions, honey, alabaster, and animal fat, that it could help cure baldness. Let us move forward now to ancient Greece. It's between 600 BC and 600 AD. We're in a time that brings us the foundation of democracy, philosophy, mathematics, drama, and poetry. And animal poop. Hippocrates was a Greek physician known as one of the most outstanding figures in the history of medicine. Somehow, he has routinely been linked to a strange concoction that was supposedly created to cure male baldness. Whether it's true or not, some scholars believe it was used for women, the recipe was real and used in some way during that time period. If you're looking to grow hair, gather a bowl and include the following. One part cumin, horseradish, beetroot, a dash of opium, and a splash of pigeon droppings. If the smell bothers you, just stick a rose in there. Opium carries with it a long list of side effects, including nausea, vomiting, lightheadedness, dizziness, drowsiness, and constipation. But on the bright side, the mixture didn't contain onion or lead, like our friends in Egypt. As ancient Rome came to power a short time later, bringing with it the legal system, irrigation, agriculture, city roads, and Christianity, they found a kinship with the Greeks in droppings from a different animal. Both ancient Greeks and Romans believed that crocodile dung had beautifying and restorative properties. Someone would have to collect the poop, which was then mixed with mud and used for anti-aging facials or perhaps a relaxing bath. Crocodile feces wouldn't have been hard to find because, well, 
it's fairly large. Servants of the wealthy were often tasked with the responsibility. Mud baths are still popular today, only with less animal excrement. Mud baths can improve complexion, relieve joint and muscle pain, and remove toxins from the body. Something that Greeks did not share with Romans was their affinity for urine. Romans weren't only worried about their skin and bodies. They cared very much about their mouths as well. What does a Roman living in the year 220 do before a date? You want clean teeth and kissable breath, but scope and Listerine are at least 1,600 years away. What Romans did was reach into their medicine cabinet and pull out a fresh jar of urine. Not only did it supposedly freshen their breath, but it helped keep their teeth white. You're asking yourself, well, would any pee work? The answer to that is probably. But if you really want to impress your mate, gargle with Portuguese urine. Sure, it's pricey, but Romans believed it was much more potent. Wealthier Romans began using various wiping techniques around this time. Wool was commonly used dipped in rose water. One hundred years later, it was more common to use a sponge soaked in salt water. The Middle Ages, also known as the Dark Ages, covered nearly 1,000 years of history. It was a very unstable mess with little to no record-keeping. For a long time, people relied on what had been passed down from the Greeks, Romans, and Persians. In the early 1300s, a barber was known to also handle teeth extraction. Without Novocaine to help patients, barbers would refer to the handy Barber's Guide to Surgery handbook. Then the Black Plague hit in 1346, and the focus became just surviving. By the 1400s, women of importance were wearing their hair in what was referred to as a pair of temples. Hair was grouped into two cones over the temples and held in place by an abundance of pins. Giant hats were all the rage, and men were often seen wearing black. In Poland, the trend was insanely long shoes called Polain. By the time they reached England, people called them Krakows, after the capital of Poland at the time, Krakow. The shoe itself was form-fitting, but the toes were the crazy part. Packed with stuffing to provide rigidity and help them hold their shape, Krakow toes could extend out between 2 and 24 inches. Eventually, they were banned, and probably for good reason. Bigger was better in every sense of the word during the early modern era between the 15th and 18th centuries. The Renaissance was upon us and we were entering into the age of reason. Leonardo da Vinci, William Shakespeare, Johann Sebastian Bach, Christopher Columbus. This was their time. I wonder how any of those men felt about codpieces, chopines, or bombasts. The codpiece, called a braguette in French, was a flap or pouch of fabric sewn at the top of a man's trousers to hide his genitals from view. It should be noted that cod was also slang for scrotum around this time. While the codpiece was originally created to provide modesty, it eventually became a symbol of pride in a fashion statement. Chopines were developed in the early 16th century and quickly became popular with women. The high-platform shoes had a practical use in that they were thick-soled and could help when walking down an uneven or muddy street. The wood or cork-based shoe was also a status symbol. Nicer chopines were made with metal and covered with leather and jewels. Much like the high-heeled shoes seen today, they weren't always very kind to feet and ankles. Another popular trend amongst the elite was called bombast. Like filling a shirt and pants worn by a scarecrow, bombast was a stuffing made of wool, horsehair, or sometimes bran. 
Men's breeches were stuffed in a pumpkin pear or balloon shape. Women's shoulders and sleeves were bombasted as well. If you take a look at paintings of Queen Elizabeth I, you'll notice that in many cases, it looks as though she's being swallowed up by her bombastic bodice. Speaking of Queen Elizabeth I, much like celebrities of today, she was the one people watched when they wanted to know what was hip and trending. Along with her cartoon-sized sleeves, she started other fads. The Queen had a very distinctive forehead. Why? Because she had practically no eyebrows and a hairline that began inches above where it should have. During this time period, the size of one's forehead was considered to be equal to their brain size. The smarter you wanted people to think you were, the more hairless distance you needed between your eyeballs and the beginning of your hairline. So how would a woman from that time acquire the unique forehead of their queen? Oftentimes, they would use some combination of walnut oil, cat feces, vinegar-soaked bandages, and ammonia. A quick Google search will tell you all the reasons why ammonia is a bad idea. Unfortunately, Google wasn't a thing back then. Contact with concentrated ammonia solutions may cause corrosive injury, including skin burns, permanent eye damage, or blindness. The full extent of eye injury may not be apparent for up to a week after the exposure. If swallowed, it can cause burns in your throat and stomach. Another striking feature of the Queen, and many people of that era, was her alabaster skin. It may be cool to sport a tan nowadays, but back then the goal was to be as white as possible. Wealthy people need not venture out of their homes, therefore they were often pale. Let's say you absentmindedly went out into the sun one day and accidentally gave yourself a little rosy glow or slight tanning of the skin. You've made a mistake because in those times, pale equaled power. There were two options available to you if you needed to bring your skin back to its translucent glow. Neither was great. One could either mix together a concoction made up of vinegar and white lead, or gather up a bucket full of leeches. Dissolving white lead into vinegar creates a thick paint-like substance that could then be applied to your face like a cream. It was known as Venetian ceruse. The trend, which was popular amongst the nobility of Europe, spread like wildfire. Men, women, and children alike sought the smooth, milky skin that ceruse provided. People would apply the cream and leave it on for extended periods of time. Aside from doing its job, the cream also potentially provided a heavy dose of lead poisoning. Some people, even at least one notable countess of that period, died due to the effects of ceruse. If you were lucky, you may have only experienced headaches, stomach cramps, constipation, muscle and joint pain, trouble sleeping, fatigue, and irritability. Leeches, as many people have experienced, fasten onto you and use anticoagulants in their saliva to encourage blood flow. If they haven't eaten for a while, a single leech might remove ten times its body weight in blood. The problem is, once a leech is fed, it may be full for a year. They weren't exactly reusable. So many people in that era were using leeches to help lose their color that leeches became incredibly hard to find. Another more serious issue is that leeches can spread disease, and if you get too many on you at one time, they can cause serious health issues. On the subject of serious health issues, by the 16th century, leprosy was on the decline, but it would still be around for a few hundred years. A stroll down any busy street might reveal numerous afflicted souls begging for money. For anyone that was low on cash but leprosy-free, obtaining a beggar's license was difficult. What to do? 
Makeup was used to create pustules on their faces in an attempt to mimic the effects of leprosy. Once the look was believable enough, they were granted a begging license. Often, con artists would use a glue-like substance painted with a red dye. People had a hard time deciphering who was sick and who wasn't, since no one wanted to get close enough to find out. Alright, let's fast forward a little now to what is commonly referred to as the modern era. From the Industrial Revolution until now, has the weirdness subsided? Or will we still do painful gross things in the name of beauty? The early days of the modern era brought great inventions, factories, revolutions happening around the globe, and a whole new style. Skin wasn't the only thing women wanted to keep white. As the Georgian period came to its end, women were very concerned with how their smiles looked. Keeping them looking nice, heck, just keeping them in their mouths was a chore. The go-to was tooth powders made of cuttlefish bone and spirit of vitriol. The problem with vitriol is that it's sulfuric acid. It did a great job of whitening teeth, but also stripped off any remaining enamel. Between the lead-based makeup and the sulfuric acid tooth whitener, many Georgian ladies had to have teeth removed, if they weren't already falling out on their own. False teeth were all the rage and often made from porcelain or ivory. And if you didn't have that kind of money, then you would get your dentures from a corpse at the morgue or a dead body on the battlefield. Sometimes these new, old teeth would come with their own infections and diseases. As we continue along, we've now entered the Victorian era. Hair and all the places it grows was no longer the focus of beauty for women. They wanted their dresses to stand out, whether by size or color. And weight loss popped up for the first time. They wanted looks that could kill. And often, they did. Green was a popular color amongst the elite. To get the bottle green color they were looking for, it took adding arsenic to the mix. Is that a problem? Yes. Prolonged exposure to arsenic can lead to cancer, liver disease, coma, and death. Treatment nowadays involves bowel irrigation, medication, and chelation therapy, things they couldn't do back then. The women wearing the dresses weren't at risk as they only wore these dresses on special occasions. The garment makers, however, well, many of them died. On the subject of arsenic, it's reported that Bavarian women around that same time would actually bathe in arsenic to help get their skin milky white. The practice came with severe skin lesions from time to time. If it wasn't the color that would get you, it was the size. Crinoline hoop skirts were a popular choice amongst women. The cage built around the waist was typically made of thin steel wires bound in fabric and draped from the waist with cotton tape ties. Picture a wedding dress, if you will. Tiny up top, like a bell on the bottom. Bustles were also fairly trendy back then. Again, think of a wedding dress. After the wedding, the bridesmaids helped the bride pin up the back of the dress, a process called bustling. In Victorian times, women wanted that at all times, not just weddings. So if the dress didn't have the cage built underneath, then cushions filled with straw would be inserted in the back side of the dress. Women either couldn't fit through doors or couldn't sit down on a chair. Tough decision. With all that straw and horsehair trapping a woman inside of her dress, Occasionally, someone might catch on fire if they walked too closely to a fireplace or lit candle. At least 20 people died that way in the 1850s. Marie Antoinette was the last queen of France before the French Revolution. 
Before she was executed, she was painted wearing a thin white dress. Known as muslin, the dress revealed her curves in a way people had never seen and many found to be inappropriate. Nonetheless, it started a fashion trend of sheer and risque white dresses. In the winter of 1803, there was a horrible influenza outbreak in Paris, and some historians believe it was the women wearing these dresses in the freezing cold that started it. Rumors swirled that women would wet down the dresses to make them more revealing, and once they got caught out in the cold, sickness was guaranteed. Belladonna, also known as deadly nightshade, is a poisonous plant that has been used as medicine for centuries. During the Renaissance, women used it to enlarge their pupils, making their eyes look more alluring. Nightshade has berries that grow on it. Rubbing up against it can cause skin irritation, and if ingested, the berry or leaves could kill you. The berries are often referred to as murderer's berries or devil's berries. It's still used today in various medicines. If you've ever had your eyes dilated at the eye doctor, chances are there was a small amount of belladonna in those drops. Another interesting trend during Victorian times involved tapeworms. A pill was offered which contained a tapeworm egg. After swallowing the pill, you would wait for it to hatch inside of you. Once hatched, the tapeworm grows and eats whatever you eat. Advertisements from around that time promised that you can eat all you want and never gain weight. No working out, no diets, no danger. And that's all well and good. It's actually a trend that's still discussed from time to time today. But how do you get it out? According to Atlas Obscura, you'd get it out by visiting Dr. Myers of Sheffield, who recently created a cylinder that contains food. Once shoved down your digestive tract, you wait for the tapeworm to latch on. Many patients who tried this solution choked on the cylinder and died before the tapeworm showed up. Other people thought that if you held a glass of milk near your butt, the tapeworm would be attracted to the milk and come out on its own. For men of the 18th and 19th centuries, big hair was in. Not their own hair, of course, but wigs with little feathers or hats on top. The wigs were made with frames of wood stuffed with straw, cotton, or wool and kept erect with beef lard or bear grease. They smelled awful. The hair pieces were called macaroni, since they looked like Italian pasta. You may have heard the song about Yankee Doodle and how he came to town riding on a pony. He stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni. Another trend for men that came later was stiff, starched collars. These were separate pieces that snapped around your neck. The unofficial name for these collars was father killers. Sometimes, if a man were to pass out drunk or after a long day at work, the collar would constrict airflow and the person would slowly asphyxiate. Men were also constantly being stabbed by the collar's sharp corners. As we arrive in the 1900s, things have settled down a bit, but people were still coming up with awful ideas and painful accessories. 1900s saw the release of arsenic complexion wafers, which would help remove freckles, blackheads, and other blemishes. There was also a line of radium cosmetics, marketed with a promise to activate circulation, firm skin, eliminate fat, reduce pore size, and much more. In 1910, a French designer debuted the hobble skirt floor-length skirts that were so tight women had to take tiny little baby steps. The 1920s introduced us to breast flatteners to be worn in combination with flapper dresses. In 1938, a woman named Isabella Gilbert created a dimple-making contraption that proved to be too painful to use and somehow came with a warning of cancer. As the 20th century moved forward, regulations and laws came into play, but beauty-related inventions were everywhere. 
Some left people scared and baffled. Some we still use today. But even now, people still borrow ideas from the past. The Daily Mail reported that Tom Cruise rubs a mixture of nightingale poop, rice bran, and water on his skin to keep his youthful look. The nightingale facial, also known as the geisha facial, is popular in Japan. Something found within the bird poop supposedly helps with moisture retention. Speaking of Japan, I didn't even get into ohaguru, the blackening of teeth, or China's long-standing tradition of foot-binding for women that wasn't outlawed until 1912. Or corsets. Oh, I forgot about corsets. Another time, perhaps. I hope you enjoyed this bizarre ride through the history of fashion and beauty. I agree with Ray Davies. Just be you and let the world change as you walk past. Did I miss anything? Any embarrassing fashion photos to share? Let me know. Curator135 at gmail.com Thank you to all the patrons who are supporting this show on Patreon. I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you to Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris for being a part of the team. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash curator135. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And don't forget to check out the Curator135 shop. I've got tons of great show-related merchandise for sale. If you've enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. It really helps. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three.